You know, I spent most of my career so far as a, as a pastor, living on a pastor's salary and raising a rather large family. I have driven an awful lot of vehicles that were one major breakdown away from the wrecking yard. So I have lots of stories to tell about the times when my vehicles failed me. There's too many to tell, really. There's the time that that we were uh, on our way to Glacier National Park for a big family vacation that I'd been planning for months, and a rod blew through the side of the engine around Douglas, Wyoming. So we got to spend our vacation in Douglas, Wyoming. (laughs) I don't recommend it. There's the countless times that my truck uh, lost its four-wheel drive in the middle of plowing through a snowstorm. And there's the time that uh, I had a, uh, the back end full of uh, 200 dinner rolls and stacks of pies that my wife had made, my four children and I on our way to a charity dinner to deliver all of this, and the fuel pump went out. That's just one vehicle. All those stories are just one vehicle. That doesn't count the half a dozen other vehicles have driven in those same years. So I consider myself something of an aficionado of automotive distress. Even now, when I'm blessed to drive slightly better vehicles, and I have come to the conclusion that the very worst automotive breakdown of all of them is the transmission failure. Not only because when you drive an old vehicle, a transmission failure means that the repair will probably cost more than the car is worth, but because transmission failure is emotionally debilitating. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to turn the ignition over and nothing happens. But when a transmission goes out, you turn the ignition over, engine fires up. You press down on the pedal, the engine revs. You put it into drive, you go nowhere. (laughs) And it's incredibly frustrating. it's, It's the only automotive repair that regularly brings me to tears. It's that feeling of knowing that that power is there. It's right. You can hear it. You can feel it. You can see the the exhaust barreling out as you rev the engine to no end. But no matter what you do, you're not going anywhere. You can't move forward. Now, I bring all of that up to you this morning because I think sometimes our spiritual life goes through breakdowns like that. That there are times when, you know, we're, we're, we're putting the fuel in The fluids are all topped off. We may be going through the whole checklist of all the things that we think that we need to do to advance through this Christian walk. But we press the pedal down and there's just no forward movement. We just seem to be stuck where we are. It's like we've hit a ceiling, like we've hit a wall. And you just can't seem to move forward. And it's frustrating because the power of the Christian life, the power of the kingdom is is all around us. We can see it. We can feel it. We can almost reach out and touch it. 
But when you press the pedal down, you don't seem to get anywhere. In, in your life, spiritual maturity is like the transmission in your car. It's, it's the thing that allows us to move forward into kingdom things. And Paul, when he writes this letter to the Ephesians, is keenly aware of the importance of this spiritual growth, of this maturation process, of this transformation. And he gives us a picture of the mature church. And Jim's been preaching on this for the last couple of weeks, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. But he gives us this picture. He says, he says, this is a church that lives a life that's worthy of its calling. It's a church of diverse gifts. We're, we're not all the same. And yet, it exists in oneness in every way that matters. It's a church that is nurtured by apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers that God has raised up within the body. It's a church in which every family member is being equipped for kingdom work. Every family member. We have to remember that the idea of clergy didn't exist until centuries later. So we're not talking about the people that we now call church leaders. We're talking about every single disciple equipped for good works. A church unified in its faith in Jesus Christ and its knowledge of Jesus Christ. A church that can exist in a world that is full of deception without being deceived. Now, how nice would that be? A church filled with disciples that, as Paul puts it, are attaining to the fullness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to that idea because I think that's really important. But why is maturity so important? Why is, why is it so important that we move beyond that initial stage of accepting the reality of who Jesus is and grow into something more uh, rounded, more significant, more meaty? Can I just challenge our idea about church for a minute here this morning? The early church... Around 100 A.D., the best we can figure, had about 25,000 members. 25,000. 200 years later, in 300 A.D., there were, by our best estimate, 20 million Christians. From 25,000 to 20 million in 200 years. That's a pretty impressive record. And actually, the numbers are a bit off. Because in reality, during this time period, the church faced oppression and persecution like we have never seen in our lifetimes. So there are times when the Romans are putting to death every Christian that they can find. And yet the church still managed this growth over two centuries. That's a growth rate of approximately three and a third percent annually. That may not sound like a whole lot. 
But let's think about that for a minute. What that means is that the church is growing three times as fast as the population is growing. And that the church doubles in size approximately every 21 years. Now imagine if that were the case in Evergreen. Evergreen was founded by Christians. So we could presume that if that had been happening over its entire history, we would scarcely find a non-believer in town. And when I talk about this growth rate of the church, I want to be clear. We're not talking about one or two or three or four congregations growing while the others all remain static or perhaps lose ground. I'm talking about the number of disciples of Jesus Christ doubling. Imagine what that would mean if we started today, if we started today with that same pattern, Imagine the difference in this community 20 years from now. Imagine what would happen in our nation two decades hence. Now, we might look at that and say, you know, that was then, this is now, that's not possible anymore. Well, the best that we can figure, the growth rate today of the church in China is 7%. That means the number of Christians in China doubles in less than 10 years. And this is in spite of the fact that the government does everything it can to suppress the Christian faith. But not for long. Because in China today, there are already more avowed followers of Jesus Christ than there are avowed communists. Isn't that remarkable? The growth rate of the number of disciples in Asia and in Africa today is so rapid that Asia and Africa regularly send missionaries to North America and Europe. How's that for a change in position? But let's come back to the early church. Three and a third percent, they're growing. Three and a third percent every year. Here's where this gets hard for us to wrap our brain around it. They did it without church buildings, without seminaries or universities, without centralized institutions or government bodies, without flashy programming, with hardly any paid leaders, no magazines, no websites, no blogs, no advertising, no growth strategists, no television shows or radio programs, no Christian music industry, no megachurches, no technology, very few copies of the Torah, a handful of hand-copied letters, extremely limited financial resources, no protected rights, very often under persecution, and regularly under the threat of death. Makes you wonder what exactly our excuse is. (laughs) What they did have by the end of the first century were disciples who had become spiritually mature. They are gifted by God and they are committed to using those gifts in service of the kingdom. They are equipped for the work of the church. Now, in our modern era, 
We tend to think that churches exist to make disciples. But that's not entirely true, is it? Disciples make disciples. What churches do is make better disciples. Churches make disciples into disciple makers. Disciples make disciples. And if we really want to think through that, doubling the church every 20 years means that in the next two decades, you need to bring one person to faith in Jesus Christ. Doesn't seem like a very unreasonable goal, does it? What Paul describes is a church that is capable and committed and ultimately on fire for the kingdom. Now, if that excites you, I want you to pay close attention because Paul's going to tell us a little bit more about how to get there. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. I want to stop there for just a moment because what Paul says here is extraordinary. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, it would be easy for us to miss the context of that passage, but we have to consider the fact that Paul's audience here is mostly Gentiles. He's speaking mostly to Gentiles. He says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. And yes, he is speaking to the theological question of those who become followers of Jesus being spiritual sons of Abraham. But it's no less a jarring statement. To put that in perspective, it'd be like me standing up before you this morning and saying to you, you must no longer live as the Americans live. It's shocking. It's a little bit frightening. And yet it's incredibly relevant at the same time. Don't live like the culture around you. Don't give in to it. Don't submit to it. Don't live in the futility of thinking like they do. It's time for a new pair of lenses. It's time to see things differently. Now Paul tells us what's broken about the culture, the things that we need to put off. Paul is a master of rhetoric. And one of his favorite rhetorical devices is the list. He's given us some great lists. Spiritual armor. Fruits of the Spirit. Lists that we memorize and think on. Then he's given us these other lists. He's given us these lists of all the horrendous things that happen in the world and the depravity to which man is capable of. These are not the lists that we have our children memorize in Sunday school. Paul's about to give us one of those lists. So here we go. This is what Paul accuses the Gentile culture of. These are the excesses. He says, first of all, uh, they, they have a futility of thought. Their thoughts are futile. There's a couple of different ways to understand that. One being that maybe their thoughts... Um, are just empty. They're just not thinking at all. 
And one being that when they're thinking, they're thinking about things that don't matter. Things that are futile, things that go nowhere. They're darkened in their understanding. In other words, when they do think about something that matters, the way that they see that thing is obscured. They're just not seeing the whole truth. They're separated from God. Separated in the sense that sin separates us from God, which is involuntary, but also separated from God in that we assert our independence from God. We try to make a life wherein we work from the assumption that we don't need Him. They have hardened hearts. So not only are they separated from God, but even when that life doesn't work, they double down. They dig their heels in and say, no, I'm not going to need God. No matter what. They have an insensitive sensuality. What we might call a blind passion. They are serving their desires, but they are serving their desires uninformed by wisdom or reason. They are surrendered to impurity. And how often do we see this? That we've, we've resolved ourselves. That impurity is just our reality. It's inescapable, so we might as well accept it. And pretty soon we find ourselves embracing it. Making it okay. And they're greedy for more. No matter what gets compromised, there's always another compromise to come. We might say that Paul takes something of a dim view of humanity. At least humanity left to its own resources and its own decision-making processes. Humanity left to its own wisdom. Paul calls it darkness and emptiness. And this is not the only place that he talks about it. In Romans 1, he says that we've replaced the true God with a lie. But once we embrace the world's idolatry, every manner of deception follows that decision. He says in Philippians 3, their God is their appetite. It's the ultimate idolatry, the idolatry of self-gratification. That whatever I feel, whatever I want, that's what I should have. We have to understand, as we read through these lists that are difficult lists, that the objective of evil is to overturn God. See, God is good. If we believe in the words of Jesus, God is the only one that's good. And so the objective of evil is to take everything that God has said and everything that God has done and invert it, turn it upside down, make it the opposite of what it is. And so we call evil good and good evil.
That's, that's what evil wants to do. Now the opposite column. Paul's given us this list of all this depravity, all the things of which humanity is sadly capable of. And then he says in Ephesians 4, 20 and, and 21, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. See, what Paul does, is he says, you have all of these things on one side of the chart. And on the other side of the chart, all you need is one thing. The one thing that balances it all, that brings it all back into perspective, that makes it all right again, is the truth that is in Jesus Christ. That's what fixes it. Fixes the brokenness, lights the darkness, rights the wrongs. It's all simple truth. Not to be overly cliche this morning, but basically what Paul says is, Jesus is the answer. If you came here this morning looking for something profound, I'm sorry. All I can give you is what any of the kids in our Sunday school program this morning could have told you. Jesus is the answer. Can you see why theology is so critical? Why this coming to know who God is plays such an important role in our development, in our coming to terms with truth? The more we know Jesus, the more our understanding of everything is changed and we are transformed by that change. We are transformed by what Paul calls the renewing of our minds. In Romans 12, too, he says, Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that there are these voices in the church today that keep telling us that we need to be a little bit like the world? That we sort of need to be the world, but cleaned up a bit. We'll, we'll follow their, their sort of cultural model. We'll scrub the language out of it. Scrub some of the sex and violence out of it. Throw in a come to Jesus talk. And that'll be the church. What Paul says is, you got to be something else. You see, the appeal of the gospel is not that we're like the world, but that we're doing everything we can to be like Jesus. And we can't stress enough what a radical change that is. How different that is. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 22, 
Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self was being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds, the way that you think, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a great word picture that Paul gives us of changing our garment. Changing clothes. Put one thing off and put another thing on. Speaking as an aficionado of automotive distress, I can tell you there's a reason that mechanics don't wear white. There's a reason you don't go put on your Sunday best to go fix the brakes. Because it's going to get on you. No matter what you do, no matter how careful you are, it's going to get on you. Paul says, your old self is like a garment that you have worn through this swamp. We not only live in the world, but it has rubbed off on us. It has changed the way that we see things. It is always trying to influence us to the negative. It's always trying to destroy what God is trying to build. And this garment that we wear is just imbued with it. But if you've ever worked on a car, if you've ever spent time underneath it or climbing through the engine compartment and gotten that filthy, then you also know how great it feels to strip off those dirty clothes, take a nice long hot shower, and be clean again. There's a reason that we often say when we've been filthy and and we haven't showered for a while, and we come out of that and have fresh, new, clean clothes on, and we say, I feel like a new person. Because that is exactly what Paul's talking about. Take off this old garment that is imbued with all the things of the world, all of its potential for depravity. Strip that off and leave it behind and put on something else. Transformation begins when we take off that old life, being made new by a changed mind, changing the way that we think, changing the way that we understand, changing the way that we see the world around us. And possibly the best illustration I can offer you of this this morning is a conversation that takes place uh, between Jesus and Peter in, in Matthew 16. And you know the conversation. Jesus says, who do you think that I am? And Peter, bold, brash Peter, is the only one with just enough courage to say, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Peter. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by God. And upon this rock I will build my church. Now, what we often miss is the very next conversation. Jesus says, by the way, I'm going to be arrested and killed and rise on the third day. And Peter, bold, brash Peter, is the only one with enough courage to say, no way, Jesus! (laughs) Say it ain't so. And Jesus, who had just 
called him blessed, says, get behind me, Satan. And here's the part that we need to really focus on. Jesus says to Peter, you are thinking like a man. You are thinking like people. Stop thinking like people. You see, that's the difference. In one conversation, Peter says what God has shown him. And in the next conversation, Peter says what his human nature is telling him. A transformed view of the world, a changing of the mind, is based on learning to see the way that Jesus sees. Learning to see with kingdom eyes. There's a reason that discipleship begins with deny yourself. It's because our thinker is broken. And if we're really going to learn from Jesus, we have to be willing to let our thinker be transformed. And so we put on this new self that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is, in fact, the answer. Let's take a look at what that means in regard to Paul's list of all these horrific things. The emptiness of our thinking is replaced by the fullness of Christ. Being filled with who Jesus is. Allowing Jesus to become that new garment. To become our full identity. To fill up all the spaces. You know, a lot of people have this misconception that the Christian faith is about not being bad anymore. You know, it's this form of moralism where what it is is I'm going to take all the sin in my life and I'm going to get rid of that and that will make me a good person and that's the Christian faith. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is being so filled with Jesus that there's not room for sin in my life. Now, do I battle sin? Yes, because I'm a sinner. And because I want there to be no part of my life that is not subject to Him. And so I need to get it out. I need to remove it. And as often as I fail, I do that with all, I, all that I have, all the power that I can muster, because I don't want there to be any part of my life that's not subject to Jesus' control. Darkened understanding is changed by the light of Christ. The truth of Jesus sort of shines into all the dark places. And Jesus becomes my priority. Jesus is what matters. More than my entertainment, more than my gratification, but also more than the things that we think are important. More than my career. More than my education. More than my family. More than my church. More than religion. Wrap your brains around that for a minute. Jesus is more important than religion. The light shines into these dark places and it reveals what's there. And I begin to see things through kingdom lenses. 
I was thinking about this week, thinking about my friend Leanne Downing down in Denver. She runs uh, a ministry to prostitutes down on Colfax. I remember having a conversation with her about how she got started in that. Streets Hope, it's called. Look it up. She said, I was sitting in a restaurant on Colfax, and I look out the window, and I see these two prostitutes standing there on the corner. And I was struck with how beautiful they were. And I wondered if they knew how beautiful they were. Oh, I wish I was that good at seeing people through the eyes of the kingdom. To see sinners and not see their sin, but see the sadness of being away from God. There, the separation from God is replaced by being reunited with God. Grace of Jesus allows us to wear white again. It allows us to rediscover our purpose, to know that we were created to be with God. And what a wonderful thing it is to be back. Hardened of heart becomes a heart softened to God, open to His Lordship, open to His will. Instead of planting our feet and seeking independence from God and having everything our own way, we've discovered a better way. We've discovered a better plan, a true hope that's not based in what we can do, but based in what He can do. Blind passion becomes enlightened passion. Psalms 37, 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You see, desire itself is not a bad thing. Passion is not a bad thing. What Jesus Christ wants to do is take your passion and redeem it for the kingdom. To fill you with a desire to see the kingdom come. To see God things done. Surrendered to impurity becomes surrendered to grace. Knowing how important grace is to us. We have a firm grasp on the reality of our sin. We don't forget it. We may have put it behind us. We may have been redeemed. We may have been forgiven. But we know we're fallen. Sometimes we don't like to think about sin because we don't like feeling guilty. But not everything about feeling guilty is bad. Sometimes we feel guilty because we're guilty. (laughs) At least I do. And so guilt motivates us to keep returning to Jesus, to keep seeking His grace. Knowing that I'm broken gives me compassion for the broken and gratitude for grace. I'm fully surrendered because I know it's my only hope. And greedy for more becomes hungry for more of Jesus Christ. 
Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. All the hunger that we have for self-gratification, do we ever get filled? But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are filled with the fullness of Jesus Christ. Several years back, my wife Lisa and I started uh, leading a mission trip to the Navajo Reservation in Bluff, Utah. The very first year that we made that trip uh, to the Navajo Reservation, we had this job. The little mission church there needed a sewer line replaced. Not exactly the most glamorous of mission projects. So miracle number one is that promoting a mission trip based on going down, digging a trench, and replacing a sewer line, we had 50 people go on this mission trip. That's miracle number one. As we uncovered the pipe, as often happens in repair projects, we discovered new problems. Namely, the septic tank had sunk below the level of the pipes. Now, you don't have to be a septic engineer to understand this this morning, but that stuff doesn't flow uphill. <laughs> so we found ourselves all of a sudden not just replacing a pipe, but having to rebuild an entire septic system. And all of my money was budgeted already. Well, we had a tractor for digging that trench. And the tractor went to work digging up the rest of the field. And just as we almost were about to finish the last trench, the tractor broke down. Now, on the reservation, there's not a tractor rental. In fact, that tractor came from two hours away. And so a couple of our guys loaded the tractor back up on a trailer and drug it back to the rental yard two hours away. They get to the rental yard, and the rental yard guy says, we don't have another one, but since our machine didn't do the job for you, your rent is free. Miracle number two, my budget got an infusion of cash. <laughs> then we lay out these... Uh, uh, new sewer lines that we have purchased. And we have to fill around them with gravel. Now, gravel on the reservation is not like gravel here. What they brought us was a bunch of four- and five-inch river rock. <laughs> they dumped it out along the trench, and we had this huge pile of river rock that now needs to go down in the trench. But our tractor's already gone. And so we line up all of our volunteers along the side of the trench, and they're all chucking rocks in. You see the little kids out there chucking rocks in one at a time. We're watching this process going, this is going to take days. We have to get back to Colorado. Out of the blue, a loader comes rolling down the street, and they see what we're doing, and they stopped and said, hey, can we push this stuff into the trench for you? Miracle number three. We broke even on the trip, even after renting porta potties. And we went home in awe of God's provision. 
I've got dozens of stories like that. The times that God stepped in and did what people could not do. In this room, there are hundreds of stories like that where God stepped in and did what people could not do. Would you trade one such moment in the presence of God for all the other things that the world promises you? I would not. Most of you know that my family and I have this crazy plan to move out to Missouri and open a wedding and event center where we're not only going to host people's weddings, but we're going to teach them about how to be successfully married. Honestly, we didn't think we'd still be here. We thought we'd be gone already. But there's still a few miracles that have to happen to get us from point A to point B. And I want to tell you, that is by design. Not because of our great faith, not because we're holier than thou, but because we desperately want to see God perform miracles. We set for ourselves a goal more than a year ago now. We sat down as a family and set for ourselves a goal, and we decided we wanted to see God do the impossible. And we're still waiting. We're still waiting because we've decided we're not going to force his hand. We're going to wait and see what the Lord does. And I'll tell you why. It's because we love to watch him work. We love to watch God work. When we do the things that we do under our own power, we feel good about ourselves for a moment. When we do the things that happen because of God's power, we feel good forever. There's nothing quite like it. This is what I want to say to you this morning. There is something that Jesus wants you to do. I can't tell you what it is. The church here can't tell you what it is. But there is something that Jesus wants you to do. Maybe he's calling you to be an apostle or a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher. But there is something Jesus is asking of you. And what matters about that is that you matter. That you matter to Him. I mean, think about how remarkable this is. And of all the people in the world that God pays attention to, He is specifically interested in you and the role that you have to play in His kingdom purpose. The Creator has a mission for you. And that mission requires your preparation. It requires transformation. It requires spiritual maturation. To answer the call of Jesus Christ, we have to put off the old self. In other words, the very first thing we have to do is get ourselves out of the way. And more often than not, when I get stuck in my Christian walk, when I get stuck and feels like the transmission's not working anymore... It's because myself got in the way. It's not because of what Jesus isn't trying to do in my life. It's because of the burden that I've placed on him 
by leaving me in his path. Peel away the garments of our humanity. No longer live as the Americans do. Stop thinking like people do. Strip away the assumptions and the plans and the futility of it all. Change the way that you think. Put on new garments. The truth that is in Jesus Christ. Let the kingdom things be your priority. Adopt a biblical worldview. Understand the world as Jesus sees it. Don't be ruled by your appetites. And don't be fooled by evil schemes. But rather be filled with Jesus Christ. Expel everything that gets in the way of that. So that Jesus can fill every crack and crevice. Heal every brokenness. And make sense of a world that makes no sense. Do you pray with me? Father, we earnestly desire to know what it means to attain to the fullness of Christ. We want to be yours. We want to serve your kingdom. We want to serve purposes greater than ourselves. Father, I would just ask that you give us the courage first to put ourselves off, to put the things of this world off, to put that brokenness off, to recognize deception and depravity for what it is, and to embrace your truth. Change the way that we think, God. Change the way that we see the world. Change the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see others. The way that we see what's going on, fill us with your love, your grace, your gratitude. Father, it is not enough what this world offers us, what this world keeps promising us is not enough, but you are. Father, for all our failings, for all the mistakes that we make, might we always choose the one who is enough. And we lift this in the name of the Son. Amen.